0: Hello and welcome to the UK Wildlife Podcast with me, Neil Phillips.
1: And me, Victoria Hillman. Hey, dear Vic. Yeah. I'm still here, Neil. How are you doing?
0: Yeah, I'm alright. I'm alright. So, we're going to start the episode, as we always do, with our latest wildlife sightings. And as usual, you're going to go first, Vic. So, what have you been seeing recently?
1: Well, I think things are definitely picking up um, as we get into mid to late may and then on into summer i think our sightings are going to start going up and we've certainly finally had some much better weather here so i'm going to start off with my garden sightings i had my first ever holly blue butterfly in the garden this week i've had one in the garden now for pretty much every day for the last few days which is really cool never had one of those in the garden before even managed to get some pictures of it because it freshly emerged so it wasn't too flighty
0: so so hold on one second you've never had holly blue in you've had small blue
1: yeah I know it's weird I've never had a common blue butterfly in the garden either that's wildlife for you yeah it is a bit weird to be honest and on to other sightings I've actually been out and about a couple of times and pleased to say the dragonflies and damselflies are starting to build in numbers so I've seen hairy dragonflies I had my first four spot chaser sighting on Monday along with numerous damselflies including variable large red and uh, blue tailed and along with those we've had what else we've seen uh, a flyby from marsh harriet and also great white egret and um, i was out on monday and we had the lovely sounds of the bittern uh, keeping us company most of the day and actually had a cuckoo fly straight past the window of the car as i was driving up the lane which was absolutely amazing and to top it all off we had an amazing encounter with a roe deer a female roder who was just she was wandering down the path in front of us uh, this was actually on one of the workshops i was guiding for green wings and she was walking down the path in front of us clearly knew we were there but wasn't phased at all just kept walking went off the path to one side just munching walking munching walking you know so we had some really lovely views of her and eventually she crossed back over the path and then headed off towards the woodland and then a little bit further down the path we also had some green tiger beetles fighting which was really cool. No photos I'm afraid because they just move way too quick to get anything but really really good to see. So yeah things are definitely picking up. Um, I do just want to quickly add one thing in though because the dragonflies and damselflies are starting to emerge and I know that the dragonfly roost is is starting to build on the somerset levels. If you are going to go and see it, please, please, please stay to the marked paths because some areas are already being trampled and we're only, you know, mid-May. So if you are going to go and visit these sites, please be respectful of the site and also the wildlife. It is their home. Please do stick to the paths and don't cross any kind of ropes or anything and don't trample the areas that they're in because it does destroy them. Um, And sometimes they recover, sometimes they don't, but it can actually cause the roost to move elsewhere so it actually ruins it for everyone else as well so what about you Neil? what have you been seeing after my little rant about
0: trampling yeah. habitats <laughs> this is only one we only room for one person to rant on this podcast Charlie.
1: <laughs> oh you just wait you wait <laughs> oh yeah i a feel a one big coming. one coming after the weekend Two, I
0: think. so sightings wise i've not been out that much uh, my garden i had a green finch on the feeder which is a first for a while my goldfinches have been coming in and out a pair of them Masses of starlings. I put out some dried mealworms earlier and, you know, talking like a a round tennis ball's worth in a tray and it's gone in 20 minutes because it's coming, you know what starlings are like. I had a walk around Thameside Nature Reserve, which is my local reserve, and recorded all the birds I heard, including a cuckoo myself. So I've heard one quite close. You couldn't quite see it, but it was quite close. And I've turned that into a little mini podcast. So it's going to be one of the bonus episodes for the members who may have already listened to it when they're listening to this episode. The rest of you can will have to wait till a bit later in the year, but I will release it. And I don't want to cause a panic, but something remarkable has happened. Regular listeners will know that there's a, a running joke now in this podcast about <laughs> dragonflies and my pond. I'm the Essex recorder for dragonflies, and in eight years, I've never had a single one show any interest in my pond. Lots have been in the garden, none in the pond. Well, I walked out a couple of days ago, and as I walked past my pond, there was a large red damselfly buzzing around. And then I saw a flash of red the next day too. So maybe finally <laughs> some <laughs> odonata have found my pond.
1: Shh, Neil, don't jinx it.
0: I know, I've probably jinxed it now. I did have a quick walk around rain and saw lots of white throats and a couple of marsh frogs. And oh, we saw a cuckoo fly past there. So I have seen a cuckoo this year. I mean, it was with the family, but there had been a report of a hoopoo that day. So we did have a bit of a look around. It had been seen couple of times but no Simon I was there but i finished on a high note in my childhood pond at my mum's old house there is a load of toad tadpoles so that's something I used to look forward to every year and it's nice to see that they're back in there because they weren't in there last year but there was a big mass of them I literally walked up to the pond and thought huh those ripples look like tadpoles looked closer and they were in fact tadpoles so that was a quite nice surprise for me I wasn't expecting to see them in there not much else to report but it's now time to go on to the news, isn't it, Vic?
1: It is, and I think you're going to kick us off, aren't you, Neil? And I think this carries on from a story that we have covered a few times.
0: Yeah, so the ongoing saga of hen harriers in this country has continued. Uh, you may have remembered the story from the last episode, where five tagged hen harriers had disappeared. That's the ones in the hen harrier brood management scheme. Well, another one has been found, named Free, and it was found dead and with no head. The post-mortem revealed the leg with the BTO ring had been removed and the head had been twisted off while the bird was still alive. So that's a lovely, pleasant thing to do. The Northern England Raptor Forum, which represent the 10 raptor study groups that cover most of the uplands of England, have written an excellent blog. It's all worth checking in their blog anyway, and they seem like a great group. Now, they pointed out this is not the first time something like this has happened, with one hen harrier having had its wings ripped off to remove the satellite tag, and that satellite tag was then attached to a crow, and there's another case where four hen harrier chicks were stamped on in the nest. Reading down through their blog post, it seems that the five missing hen harriers were just part of the story, as a total of 20 hen harriers have died or gone missing in the last year, 12 of which were those monitored by Natural England as part of this brood management scheme. Now, you'd think after all this catalogue of death and basically failure, in my view, they'd be rethinking this hen harrier brood management scheme. Basically, chicks are removed from the nest, so then the parents won't be hunting on the grouse moor, killing red grouse, which the grouse moor owners don't want. The theory goes that this will magically stop hen harriers being shot over grouse moors, because obviously they're, they're not so much of a threat to the things they want to shoot. But the track record of this has shown that this really isn't working. They're still killing them, or they're still going missing over grouse moors. But Natural England's conclusion of all this mayhem and death is to extend the scheme for two more years. Now, obviously, this idiotic decision to extend it for two years has caused a bit of outcry online and elsewhere. It's failing to reduce persecution, and it's just basically just giving the Moor owners what they want while they're still breaking the law. Should I point out, not all Moor owners are doing it, but enough are doing it to reduce the numbers, or, you know, at least limit their growth. And unsurprisingly, perhaps, Chris Packham spoke out about this calling it a disgrace to conservation, a disgrace to the public purse and a shabby sop to organised wildlife criminals. A report that came out soon after he'd actually made the comment that showed illegal killing accounts for 75% of the deaths in hen harriers between 1 and 2 years old and between 27 and 43% of all first year birds. Now there's some other rather disturbing stats in this report. That shows that with every 10% increase in grouse moor use by a hen harrier, it was accompanied by a 45% rise in them being killed by illegal persecution. Males were almost six times more likely, and females were three times more likely to be illegally killed in 20km squares where grouse moors were the dominant land use, compared to squares that were not managed with grouse moors. In conclusion, in this report they stated, our results, together with those of previous studies on hen harriers and other raptors, demonstrate the deeply ingrained and widespread illegal killing of raptors across UK grass moors. The study also recommends more regulation, like licensing for grouse moors, as called for by the RSPB and many other conservationists. And the head of the Moorland Association responded to this report by saying they would welcome more regulation, but it should be internal, i.e. self-regulation, which is basically what they've had for the last 70 years when illegal persecution has continued.
1: Yeah, it's... Uh... It's not good, is it? Well, I'm, I'm going to throw in a, a good... Well, I don't know if it's a good news story, but...
0: certainly interesting, isn't it? Is it is
1: very, very interesting. And a few of you may have seen this. I saw it on the news the other day with gannets and bird flu. And studies found that gannets that survive bird flu, bizarrely, have completely black eyes. It seems that as a result of having bird flu, the normally pale blue iris has actually turned black or become mottled. Now, they took blood samples from 18 adult gannets, eight of which had bird flu antibodies, showing that they'd survived having the disease. And of these eight, seven had the odd coloured eyes. It's not known yet if their eyesight's actually been affected. They say this could be useful to determine how many birds have had the disease and survived. And this disease has caused massive losses in sub-bird species, especially so with seabirds, with gannets on Bass Rock in Scotland having a 42% drop in survival rate, in 2022 compared to 2021 and i actually saw this on the news i think it was earlier this week or maybe last week that the farne islands are actually going to remain closed this year as well to visitors as a result of bird flu to try and protect the birds that are there yeah it's still it's still ongoing but definitely an interesting study and it'd be interesting to see if you know any more comes of that really
0: yeah there's we'll probably talk about a bit more next episode but there was some Not very good sounding news about black-headed gold colonies across the UK seem to be getting hit quite hard this year. But we'll wait to see how that story develops before we mention it anymore on the show. And if the first rant wasn't enough for you, I've got another rant coming because this literally came out today in the news. The UK's water companies have issued an apology for dumping sewage into our rivers and seas and they've promised to spend £10 to help improve things. Now, can we tell from the tone of my voice that I, <laughs> I'm... And it will really shock you that I'm going to be rather cynical about this announcement.
1: Surely not, Neil.
0: I know. Well, because to me and basically anyone with the shred of common sense and awareness of what has been going on recently, and, well, for the last decade, really, it basically looks like that after two years and two resigning prime ministers, a war, and that dreaded B word, dominating the news, the issue of Sui our River's is still in the news and I guess they hoped it would just go away like a lot of these stories do but fair play to all the journalists it's still going so now they realize that they've got to actually at least appear to be doing something otherwise the government might actually do something there's a few things to say about this one of them is last year ministers were insisting that it would cost up to 150 to 600 billion to sort out the problems with our sewage network so what's 10 billion? (laughs) basically in in that landscape what's that even the lowest estimate it's 1 15th of what you need i mean obviously anything is better than nothing because you know 10 billion can do a lot of good but the interesting thing about that figure was that every time ministers were asked to where the figures come from they avoided the question and a bit later on when the main fuss died down there was you might remember something about a prime minister parting in a certain time when they shouldn't have been a lot of follow-up stuff came out i dug back and had a look and there were some figures more around the range of 4 billion to 60 billion to sort out the worst of our sewage problems so maybe the 10 billion would actually make some difference but not enough And around that 60 billion figure as a complete coincidence in the last couple of decades water companies have paid out 57 billion in dividends to shareholders this apology gets even better because the water companies announced that they will initially foot the bill which you know sounds good quite right too but then they want to claw the money back by putting our water rates up so basically you and me will be paying for them based on their previous track record i mean they i mean i don't want to get too political here but they privatized them on the back of improving the network and there were some improvements and then the enforcement disappeared and they're now just milking the system because the Big problem with water companies is you can't switch to a better one because you're stuck with the one you got, depending on where you live. As usual on matters involving rivers and sewage, Fergal Sharkey summed it up brilliantly. He said, What I am actually hearing is no apology for the fact we have paid them for a service we haven't got. They are now suggesting we pay them for a second time for a service we haven't had. We should have an apology for the suggestion they are going to put the bills up by £10 for their own incompetence and their greed. This is nothing to celebrate. And I have to agree with him. And of course, there's the added thing here, isn't there? That they'll put the bills up to pay for sorting out the sewage works. What's the guarantee they'll actually use that money? And how much of it will get funneled off to shareholders again? Unless there's laws put in place to stop them doing it. And nothing's going to happen until 2024 anyway. I think there's going to be an election before then, so who knows what's going to happen. But yes, water companies, eh? Mm. I could say a lot about water companies. We're going to have to do an episode on sewage and rivers, I think, at some point. Oh,
1: should we have a bit of a good news one?
0: Let's have a good news now. Okay,
1: The endangered twite shad, one of the rarest freshwater fish in the UK, has returned to its spawning ground in the River Severn. This was achieved by the installation of four fish passes by the Unlocking the Severn project, allowing them to migrate upstream to their old spawning grounds. The species had declined since the 19th century as weirs were built, blocking their migration, but it's hoped that the population will recover now that they can migrate again.
0: It's quite a nice story, that one. They're doing a lot of work on the River Severn at the moment. It's really good going to have one happy story to talk about a rainbow sea slug has been found by rock pooler vicky barlow in falmouth it's a wonderful little colorful mollusk that's normally found in warmer waters off spain and portugal and warmer areas of france Um, and it's only the third uk sighting and the first in a rock pool and that's what i call a good find well done vicky
1: yeah that's a pretty cool one you'd be very happy with that one wouldn't you?
0: go and give it a google guys because the new story i come up it's a really pretty sea slug i mean sea slugs are pretty cool anyway but this one's really pretty Excellent. Oh, and we've also got a shout-out from a friend of the show, Ashley Whiffin, and she said she'd like to give a shout-out to the team at the Biological Records Centre who manage iRecord. They've made some great improvements to the system recently, including updates to the app and the verification process for experts, making it even easier for people to record wildlife and for records to be checked. So get out and use it, folks, especially if you find a carrion beetle that would be what ash would say wouldn't it
1: yeah for sure (laughs) no
0: it is is a lot better i noticed the improvements a few weeks ago maybe it came in yeah it really does look a lot better the program it's a nice little update that
1: we've got a a thank you as well like roman who bought bought us three coffees so thank you very much roman said after listening to episode 83 followed by the buy me a coffee bonus episode i feel i owe you another coffee the mike dilder interview is one of the best episodes you've produced great content that had its laugh out loud moments Mike has led an enviable life and is a great storyteller. It's amazing how he can instantly recall the scientific names of species. I usually struggle to recall common names. I can imagine how time-consuming and the amount of work that goes into the production of each podcast, but I can honestly say that I look forward to every episode. I just hope enough listeners put their hands in their pockets to enable you to keep up the good work.
0: So. hint hint nudge nudge wink wink yeah, so thank you thank you so much
1: <laughs> roman yeah i mean we we do put a lot of time and effort into the podcast it's you know with the research obviously speaking to the guests and you know what i know where you're coming from half the time I'm, i swear i can't even remember my own name let alone the names of uh, species and then let alone scientific names so yeah
0: i sometimes forget my friend's name don't i barbara <laughs> no. sorry dad joke had to get one in there somewhere didn't i Oh, the- <laughs> yeah, thanks very much for that, Roman. Yeah, much, much appreciate the coffees. Sorry, you're going to say something.
1: Then. Uh, yeah, I don't remember what I was going to say.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, there we go. A case in point. So on to the main topic of our episode, which is the cockchafer or May bug, and hopefully Apple Podcasts won't be us <laughs> downgrading <laughs> the podcast for using a rude word for the first half of its name.
1: Yeah, so the common cockchafer is one of the largest beetles in the UK at about three centimetres or just over an inch in length and bulky in shape. You certainly know when one flies into you. I think we've all experienced that. They are pretty bulky <laughs> creatures. The common cockchafer is found in woodland, gardens and farmland across most of England, but it's absent from much of the southwest and northwest England and patchy distributions in Scotland but found across Ireland. I can honestly say oh, I don't think I've ever seen one around here. There is a second, rarer species, which is the northern cockchafer, which is found in deciduous and mixed upland forests in North Wales, Northern England, and Scotland. And there have been a few records from Northern Ireland. There are members of the scarab beetle, uh, scarab beetles.
0: Uh, I have got the hard name to say in her section to read. It's quite funny. Do we just have a go? Scarabidae. 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 Scarabidae.
1: <laughs> a group which also includes the dung beetles, along with the other chafer beetles, both of which we will cover in other episodes, but we'll stick to the two cockchafer beetle, um, cockchafer species in this episode.
0: I think we need to get Ashley whiffing on if we're doing beetle family names in the future. Yeah. (laughs) I've heard her say that before, and she says it effortlessly. Both species are broad and rounded in shape, with brown elytra, or wing cases. Each of these have four ribs running down the length, and there's a triangular pygidium that sticks out the elytra. At the end of the abdomen a bit like a towel a triangular shaped towel really the pygidium is how the two species are told apart with the male common cockchafer having a short round end to the pygidium but in the male northern cockchafer it is more elongate the head and pronotum that's the hard cover over the thorax behind the head are dark brown to black in color with brown hairs around the joints but the short fan like antennae are orange in color the legs are brown like the elytra, and the underside of the head and thorax is covered in grey, sometimes orangey hair, but the underside of the abdomen is mostly black in colour. They first emerge in April to May time, hence their common name, the Maybug, flying around to the end of June. They fly mostly at dusk and they are attracted to lights, sometimes flying in through open windows and quite often into moth traps. Where they occur, they can be locally common. And I once found 40 plus, I think it was about 50 or 60 in the end, in one moth trap that only run over one night. So they're pretty common where they want to be. The adults feed on leaves of trees and shrubs with oak, maple, sycamore, hornbeam and beech and plum, their favourite food plants. But they will sometimes feed on chestnut, willow, poplar, hazel and birch.
1: The, the adults will normally rest during the day and fly at dusk they're powerful flyers and fly at speeds of up to three meters a second, but are not particularly accurate with that speed and seem to crash into things like many large beetles do when they fly. Looking at you, stag beetles. The name, <laughs> the name cockchafer means big beetle in old English, with the cafer descending from the German for beetle. Being such large, distinctive insects, they have many common names, including Mitchamador. Billy Witch and Spang Beetle. <laughs> yeah, this is a new one on me. It's also known as the Doodlebug, which is the origin of the nickname for the V1 bombs in the World War II because of the loud buzzing noise of the V1's pulse jet resembling the buzzing of the cockchafer or
0: doodlebug. So the life cycle is quite interesting. It starts with the female digging down 15 to 25 centimetres into an area of soft soil to lay her 3 millimetre oval eggs. And these are laid in batches of about 24. The soil must not be too dry or too wet or the eggs won't develop, and very wet weather or droughts can cause many eggs to die. The eggs hatch after four to six weeks. Now, the larva that hatches out is sort of grubby-looking creature. It looks like a small stag beetle larvae, and sometimes there's a bit of confusion between the two, but stag beetles are found in rotting wood, not in soil like the cockchafer is. The larvae or grub, as it's often called, have an orange head with pretty large pincer-like mandibles, six short legs at the head end, and the body is soft but segmented, an off-white creaming colour, and you can see a number of spiracles along the length down the side. After hatching, towards the end of June or July, the larvae begin to feed on small roots in the top 20 centimetres of soil, feeding away until the cold weather appears in autumn. Then it burrows deep down to between 20 centimetres and 100 centimetres into the soil, and becomes inactive over winter there. It then returns to the shallow soil again in spring to feed. It takes three years to reach adulthood, and grows relatively slowly each spring and summer. By the end of the first year it can be up to two centimeters long and zero point eight grams in weight, but by the second autumn after eating all year it can reach up to three point five centimeters and has increased its weight up to four grams. The following spring it grows to four centimeters or more in its last molt before pupating in June. In cooler areas it may take longer, up to four or five years to reach maturity. The larvae can find roots by detecting carbon dioxide that emanates from them and they can smell and taste them as they get a bit closer, particularly those that have been damaged and they can tell if they are edible or not from the sense of smell too. Larvae feed on the roots of grasses and wildflowers like dandelion and plantain. They also eat the roots of crops such as cereals, red beet, potato, lettuce, raspberry, strawberry, meadow grasses, fruit and forest trees. They can move up to 30 centimeters through the soil each day. Because of this, they are seen as a pest in agriculture and in many gardens, nurseries and areas like golf courses where they like to have all the grass neat and tidy as the eating of the grass roots can cause large patches of it to die. The larva feed the most and so do the most damage in that second year where they have the most growth. Once they reach pupation time, which is usually in June of the third year, they dig a small chamber between 15 and 100 centimetres underneath the soil surface but generally around 35 centimetres down, and take about two months to finish pupating, depending on the temperature, and adults emerge from the pupa in August or September. But they don't dig directly up to the surface at this point. They will sit there over winter, wait until the following spring to emerge in April-May time. Males emerge first and wait until dusk to make their first flight, and they will take off and head towards forest edges and lines of trees and sometimes buildings that form a silhouette against the sky when viewed from the fields from which they emerged. Sometimes, as they can fly for more than five kilometres away, they end up forming swarms of thousands or even tens of thousands of beetles. These have been known to gather on chimneys and fall down into fireplaces, causing a bit of alarm for the owners of the households. (laughs) From this, they will search for a favoured species of tree, and they are joined by the females here and mate. After 10 to 20 days of feeding, the females fly back out to the fields to lay their eggs, usually 200 to 900 metres from the trees, but up to 1,500 metres away. She then finds an area of bare sandy soil to dig down to lay up to 38 eggs, and she stays in the soil of them for two to four days. At this point, two thirds of the females die after laying their first batch of eggs. The other third fly back to the trees and feed up before flying out again to lay another smaller batch of eight to 24 eggs. This life cycle typically takes three years but can take up to five, and the northern cockchafer has been shown to take three to six years to complete its life cycle.
1: As Neil mentioned there, they can feed on crops and stuff, and they have been considered, or they are considered a pest, and have been a problem for farming for centuries. Uh, things were so bad in medieval Avignon in southern France that they were banished to a set area and, of course, did not follow the court order, and those that were found outside it were killed. Nicholas Tesla, the famous inventor, described a scene in what is now Croatia in the 1860s, saying, Cockchafer's sometimes broke the branches of trees by the sheer weight of their bodies. The bushes were black with them. In the 19th and early 20th century, they were controlled by mass catching of the adults. At this time, they were much more abundant. In mainland Europe in 1911, 20 million individuals were collected in 18 square kilometres of forest. This was a major flight year when there would be a mass emergence, which, due to the already mentioned typical three-year life cycle, used to happen every three years in mainland Europe and still does in many areas, though with much lower numbers. But those killed would not always be wasted, as they were sometimes eaten by humans in the past. They were made into soup or covered in sugar, and eaten as sweets. Mm, mm, mm. The larvae were coated in flour and fine breadcrumbs, and cooked in butter. Mm, Tasty. In the mid-20th century, pesticides helped keep their numbers down. Too efficiently, in fact, and they were all but extinct in some areas of Europe by 1970. More restricted pesticide use has allowed them to recover somewhat, but not to the huge numbers of the past.
0: Now, as you can imagine, such a large, tasty morsel would be eaten by other creatures other than humans. (laughs) They're known to be taken by owls, not just little owls as you expect, but tawny and long-eared owls take them too. Their favourite food are some of the larger bats, such as the greater horseshoe bat and noctule. Corvids are well known for eating them as would a badger or fox that finds one crawling around on the ground. Ground beetles and wood ants have been recorded attacking the adults on the ground as well. The larvae is seeked out by rooks, and it's given them another common name, which is rookworm. But they're also eaten by starlings, other corvids, and gulls, especially when uncovered, such as when a field's been ploughed, And some of the predatory click beetle larvae are known to have a party when there's cockchafer larvae around it. I thought most of the click beetle larvae were herbivorous, but apparently some of them are predatory and are well known for eating the cockchafer larvae. That was quite interesting to find out.
1: Mm, Interesting. And as you know, on this podcast, we do love a little bit of folklore when it comes to our nature and wildlife. So cockchafers do appear in literature. Cockchafer flies off with Thumbelina in the book, taking her off to his tree where they all decide she's ugly because she only has two legs. The German version of Ladybird, Ladybird Fly Away Home features a cockchafer instead of a ladybird.
0: And children in Europe were known to put a string on the cockchafers and let them fly around in circles. Another more cruel method was to put a pin for a wing to pin it down and watch it go round and round. And the inventor, Nicholas Tesla, is quoted of saying his first invention was using cockchafers. He said, "'I would attach as many as four to them to a crosspiece, rotably arranged on a thin spindle, and transmit the motion of the same to a large disk, and so derive considerable power. These creatures were remarkably efficient, for once they started, they had no sense to stop, and continued whirring for hours and hours. The hotter it was, the harder they worked. All went well until a strange boy came to the place.' He was the son of a retired officer in the Austrian army. That urchin ate maybugs alive (laughs) and enjoyed them as though they were the finest blue point oysters. That disgusting sight terminated my endeavours in this promising field and I have never since been able to touch a maybug or any other insect for that matter. And that seems like a rather entertaining (laughs) place to finish the episode. They should still be flying around by the time i finish editing this episode, so do keep an eye out for them at dusk, especially if you put a light on, you might see a big beetle buzzing around.
1: Yeah, but please don't eat them or tie strings to them. Um, that, yeah,
0: that's not, a bit cruel. Yeah, that's a bit cruel. Do get some photos, though, and share them with us. Yeah, yeah,
1: if you see any, please do let us know and get any photos. I don't think, I've never seen one here where I am in Somerset, but I think maybe we don't have them so much.
0: Yeah, it's a bit more patchy yeah. in the West Country, looking at the distribution map, but uh, yeah, definitely get them. Not quite where i am i get the related summer chafers and my out back in my garden i've had big swarms of them which looking at the behavior of the cockchafer, they probably come out from all different gardens and gathering on the one bush i couldn't work out on the one bush but it was the tallest one thinking about it so that might be why i don't have we got any other news Vic? no
1: i don't think so well then make sure you if you come into bird fair you come and say hello to us we'll both be there we will send out more details on locations times etc etc nearer the time
0: and i'll just plug my youtube channel again my dragonfly tour videos there's a load more that will be coming out the next few weeks so if you like dragonflies do go and check out youtube.com forward slash uk wildlife and go and watch me videos and go subscribe the
1: only thing i've to announce is that prints are now available to pre-order of my common toads and my firelear tree frog through my shop on made me 10 of sales of those are going to be donated to wildlife conservation charities
0: well, I think that's it from us, isn't it? I think it is. See you in the next episode, guys. Okay. Take care. Bye. Bye.
1: Thank you for listening to the UK Wildlife Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please do subscribe and leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast service you use.
0: You can follow us on Twitter at UK Wildlife Pod or one word.
1: Or on Instagram at UK Wildlife Podcast
0: and like us on our facebook page uk wildlife podcast and you can also post to the uk wildlife podcast community group
1: If you would like to share your wildlife news or sightings with us on Instagram or Twitter, then please tag us in the post and use the hashtag UKWildlifePodcast.
0: And you can now support us through our Buy Me A Coffee account, which you can find at buymeacoffee.com forward slash UKWildlifePod, where you can give us a one-off bit of support or join our membership scheme. Head there to find out more. This episode was edited by, by Neil Phillips. Her music is by Oscar Henderson. You can find him on Instagram at oscar.creates.